Welcome to the NPO Media Podcast. This podcast is produced by members of the Staten Island Chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. The goal is to provide a voice for those living with mental illness, their family members and loved ones, professional clinicians, and others who provide support and services for individuals living with mental illness. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast belong solely to the interviewees and do not represent NAMI or its affiliates. For this episode, I spoke with Elizabeth Kelly, a criminal defense lawyer with a nationwide practice in representing those with mental illness and developmental disabilities. Well, thank you, Peter, for inviting me, and I'm happy to talk with you and all of your listeners. I am a criminal defense lawyer. I specialize in representing people with mental disabilities, and I am also the chair of the ARCS National Center for Criminal Justice and Disability, and I'm very pleased to say that the American Bar Association has just published a book that I edited titled Representing People with Mental Disabilities, colon, A Practical Guide for Criminal Defense Lawyers, and I'm currently at work on a new book titled Representing People on the Autism Spectrum, colon, A Practical Guide for Criminal Defense Lawyers. How did you come to dedicate your practice to representing those with disabilities? Purely by accident. Many years ago, I represented a young man with an intellectual disability. In fact, I represented him on two cases. He was a very typical defendant with an intellectual disability, meaning he was preyed upon by his so-called friends who were very streetwise to be the lookout during a burglary. And there was no question but what he participated in the offense. But obviously, given who he was and given who these other people were, his level of guilt, if you will, was very, very different from the average criminal defendant. And working with his caseworker and the probation department, we were able to persuade the judge to craft a probation sentence that made sense that protected him as well as the community from his ever reoffending. And as you probably know, the disability community is very well and tightly networked. And his caseworker started telling families that I might be a good attorney for their son or daughter and word spread. And I realized I enjoyed working cases where the defendant had an intellectual or developmental disability. And from there, the step to representing someone with a mental illness was a very small one. And as the the years progressed, I developed a reputation for and a specialty in working cases with people with all types of mental disabilities and have come to uh, to focus on that in recent years. So you have represented individuals in different states. Can you explain a little bit how that works and how that's possible? I have. I am based in Spokane, Washington, but I practice all over the United States. 
And what enables me to practice in other states is uh, a legal device called admission pro hoc vicee. And that basically means that in most states, I affiliate with a local attorney, I fill out a form, I pay a fee, the form has some basic information about me and about the attorney I'm going to affiliate with. And the court then gives me special permission to make court appearances, usually in the company of that sponsoring attorney for purposes of that one case and that one case only. So, for instance, somebody in our local New York area would be able to retain your services. Very, very much so. So the, um, the, the potential client or the potential client's family could contact me. We talk a little bit about the case. If um, they felt comfortable with me and if I felt that this was a case where I might be able to make a difference, then I would contact a colleague in, in that particular county or that geographic area ask if they would be willing to to work with me on the case, and then we would uh, we would start the, the procedure of Pro Hoc Vice. We're fortunate here in Staten Island to have a mental health court made up of very dedicated staff who work to divert people from winding up in Rikers Island, but unfortunately, sometimes they do. Oh, absolutely. At, at Rikers Island is a hellhole, and no one should be in, in Rikers, let alone someone with, with a, a mental disability. But uh, no, mental health courts, veterans courts, other types of problem-solving courts are very well-intentioned in terms of diverting people out of the criminal justice system and giving them a very concentrated type of probation or diversionary sentence that keeps them and and the community safe. Uh, not not all of these uh, problem solving courts are perfect. They're not for everyone. Not every attorney is well suited to practice in those courts. Um, but they are prevalent throughout the country. They uh, handle people with both misdemeanors as well as felonies, although some types of offenses or charges serve as a complete bar to admission to a particular court. But nonetheless, um, they, they are prevalent, they show great promise, and people like you tend to be strong supporters of them. What I do respect about the mental health court is that they use a case management approach, knowing that there are so many dynamics involved in keeping a person out of the criminal justice system. What you point to is hugely important, meaning it's not just the mental disability that um, is, is a factor and an impediment in so many people's lives. It's the whole tapestry of things that can go wrong, employment, health care, housing, um, uh, people who care about them and who support them, transportation, food, um, uh, romantic relationships. And if any one of those strings in the tapestry is pulled or is unraveled, then their whole lives can unravel. So what, what mental health courts do and what a lot of other courts 
in this country do is have a holistic approach to not only taking care of the legal matter or even the matter of the mental disability, but trying to help people with their transportation, with their employment, with their health care, with their housing, all of those sorts of things which are so important to functioning in 21st century society. Families with loved ones with severe mental illnesses have an increased role as providers of care with the closure of psychiatric hospital beds and overtaxed outpatient care providers. This put quite a strain on families. And they can't do it. They can't always provide the support defined in a thousand different ways that family members need. For many people with mental disabilities, they are adults, sometimes in their 30s, their 40s, and 50s, or older. And what that means is they have parents or siblings who are older as well, and they have their own obligations, they have their own issues, and they are not in a position to give the time, the economic resources, the emotional support that is so badly needed. One of the things that we do require is a stronger-based system of community-based health care in this country so we can attend to not only the medical and the behavioral health issues, but also take care of some of these other needs, which must be met. It seems behavioral health care is driven not only by economic concerns, but concerns over one's civil rights. Yeah. And what works for one person may not work for another person. We need to have a variety of different uh, therapies and and modalities available for for people. Certainly, the civil rights uh, concerns are profound for uh, opponents of AOT. Um, But the bottom line is we need to have many, many different modalities of treatment available in this country for not just all kinds of people, but all kinds of mental disabilities and combinations of mental disabilities. I know it can be a particular challenge when an individual has autism and co-occurring disorders. Oh, sure. And and we know that uh, for people on the autism spectrum, including people with Asperger's, the uh, occurrence of co-occurring disorders or the rate of co-occurring disorders is very, very high. So, for instance, uh, a person on, on the spectrum who was picked on, who was bullied as a, an adolescent, as an adult, can have anxiety and depression. One of the most frustrating challenges to family members of loved ones with mental illness is when the individual suffers from agnosognosia and truly believes that they do not have any type of mental illness, therefore they will never adhere to any type of treatment regimen. Yeah, and and a variation on that is you have people who do have insight, who know that they are mentally ill, they have, and their family knows that they are mentally ill and reaches out and reaches out and reaches out for sustained and meaningful treatment, and they can't access it. And then tragedy strikes.
Can you share some insights about what your message might be for the family whose loved one is currently involved with the criminal justice system? Not to give up hope. What was so difficult for me, what's so heartbreaking for me is that by the time families get to me or clients get to me, they have been ostracized, even abused for days, weeks, months, years, maybe even decades by so-called friends and family members, people in the school system, employers, people in the neighborhood, and now they're in trouble with the criminal justice system. Sometimes they have previously had a bad experience with an attorney for whatever reason, and not every attorney is perfect for every single case. And sometimes the offense is such that there's very little an attorney can do. We are only attorneys. We are not miracle workers. And given the mandatory sentencing policies in some jurisdictions, given the charging policies, given the dynamics of the local court, there is a limit to what we can do. But that doesn't mean that we cannot try in terms of working up the case as best we can and trying to either get the prosecutor to move off the original charges and extend uh, a plea offer that makes sense or fashioning a probation sentence that the court is willing to impose and does make sense. Or if this is a triable case, taking it to trial, knowing, of course, that in many jurisdictions, if the defendant loses at trial, not only is the the maximum penalty imposed, but that maximum penalty is mandatory. Many bottom lines, it is fundamentally wrong and perverse to criminalize someone for acting out the symptoms of his or her disability. And it is even more perverse when someone is incarcerated to punish them within uh, the custodial environment for acting out the symptoms of their disability. As you know, far, far too many people are thrown into solitary confinement in our jails and prisons, people who have mental disabilities and who just can't help themselves. It seems there are a significant amount of people in jails and prisons who have severe mental illness, although those statistics differ. Yeah, yeah. And we know it all depends because there's not a uniform way of reporting those statistics. But for instance, we know that even though a small portion of the jail and prison population is female, a huge number of those females have some type of mental illness, usually uh, some type of post-traumatic stress disorder or, uh, or depression. And it seems many are trapped in a cycle where they commit minor offenses, but they wind up going to jail, going to a state facility, compensating, getting discharged, and repeating that cycle again. Yeah, and one of the reasons why so many of those people are in Rikers is because they can't post bond. 
And for minor offenses, that's particularly absurd. And it's not only that we want to prevent reoffending or recidivism because it's the humane thing to do, but also from a legal perspective, every time a person acquires a new charge, a new arrest, a new conviction, that gives them a longer criminal record. And the more serious your record is, the more your ability to negotiate a good plea bargain is is diminished. So for instance, if you have never been in trouble before, provided it is a relatively low level offense, you can negotiate with the help of your attorney something pretty reasonable. But if you've got a long rap sheet, particularly if you have a number of, of prior offenses and you are now in the federal system, then your ability to bargain is almost non-existent. Every case is the most important case. If you have any ability to negotiate a felony down to a misdemeanor or a misdemeanor to a, a citation, it's important that you do that. And certainly, if the facts of your case warrant your going to trial, hopefully you can exercise that constitutional right. While being incarcerated in jail or prison is the least therapeutic of environments, having a criminal record seems to be a big obstacle for many whose recovery includes a goal in obtaining employment. And I've had clients who do get probation, but because they do have a felony on their record, they just cannot pass a background check. And sure, it makes sense for certain types of crime to make someone ineligible for certain types of jobs. So if, for instance, you are convicted of a crime of violence against a child, you don't want to give that person a job as a playground aid, but there are a host of other things that that person could do. So really, a prospective employer needs to be willing to give someone a chance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for many employers, in fairness, it's a question of liability, and, and I understand that. But other states, like New York, have some incentives for employers to give someone with an offense a job. So changing subjects a bit, a painful reality that I've heard in NAMI circles have been family members who have had to take out orders of protection against loved ones who, for whatever reason, have become a danger. And when they filed for that order of protection, it was was one of the hardest things that that person ever had to do, but it was important for their safety and the safety of their families. I know early on in my involvement with NAMI, I took the family to family course, which really does emphasize the need to remain healthy and resilient because families do seem to be the chief provider of support and care for individuals who live with severe mental illness. One of the heartbreaking things about my particular area of practice is I see that so often the mental disability divides the family. There are certain family members who just, for whatever reason, can no longer have anything to do with that particular person. And there are family members, often siblings, who while growing up felt neglected because the sibling with the mental disability 
they perceived was getting all the attention from the parent or that sibling with a mental disability created such an unstable home life that their childhood was not what they felt it could have been. A most frequently discussed topic for families with an individual involved in the legal system is, is there really hope? Cautious hope. As I said before, we are only attorneys. We are not miracle workers and we are largely confined by the legal system. But there are attorneys out there who care, who fight, who persist, who understand that all of these issues are interrelated. And one of the things that I would recommend to people is if you go on my website, www.elizabethkellylaw.com, K-E-L-L-E-Y, I have a free ebook which is a guide for families who have a loved one involved in the criminal justice system. Can you share with our listeners some information about the book you recently published? Yes, yes. Representing People with Mental Disabilities, Cohen, a practical guide for criminal defense lawyers published by the American Bar Association. This, Peter, was basically the book that I wish I would have had when I started practicing because it is a very, very practical guide, not only for new attorneys, but attorneys who've been around the block a few times, but who may not know a lot about representing people with mental disabilities. So it contains chapters about a variety of different topics, competency, sanity, malingering, mitigation, jail and prison conditions, neuroscience, juveniles, risk assessment, ethics, mental health courts, veterans courts, standby counsel, 20 different chapters by mental health experts, professors, and criminal defense lawyers. It sounds to me like an enormous undertaking to assemble all of this information into a single reference. And I've, I've enjoyed doing it, and some of the feedback that I've gotten from my readers has been really, really gratifying. Sometimes a superb attorney has called me and, and said, you know, I never really understood what malingering was, and I never understood that you could be faking some symptoms, but some of the other symptoms could be really real. And that's given me a lot of insight to my client. Is there some general advice you can give to individuals and or their families? If you or a loved one is involved in the criminal justice system, play an active role. Get in touch with the attorney who has been assigned to the case sooner rather than later or go out and retain an attorney who has sensitivity to and hopefully experience with the particular type of disability. And then provide as much assistance as you can. If you or the family member has been treated, get the releases prepared for treatment records, or if you have the actual records provide those. Give a name of people who can provide insight, friends, other family members, employers, military, schools, etc. 
try and provide as much information as possible to the attorney if medications are important try and get to the attorney and if warranted the jail a list of medications and their dosages knowing of course that the jail may not provide them and in fact you may not want yourself or the loved one to be in in a jail during the pendency of the hearing but try and be as proactive as possible. Give your attorney enough time and space to work, but by the same token, give your attorney the tools he or she needs. And if you or a loved one has been assigned a public defender, know that because of privacy reasons, HIPAA, as well as attorney-client privilege, that public defender may not be able to share everything that you would like or because of a huge caseload, that attorney may not be able to give as much time. But nonetheless, make the effort and try and provide as much good information as possible. Well, I want to thank you very much for being on this episode of the podcast And I will post links to your website and your book in the liner notes. Well, thank you for the invitation. This is a wonderful podcast. You take care. Thank you for listening to the NPO Media Podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. This podcast is brought to you by volunteers from NAMI, New York City, Staten Island. Their website is namistatenisland.org. If you or someone you know is interested in participating in an NPO Media Podcast, please email us at info at npomedia.org.